Welcome back to hour number two of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Bean. Thanks for joining us for this second hour of news and opinion. We're looking for the truth in politics and culture. And wherever we find it, we talk about it, we comment on it, and we bring it to you so you can kind of navigate what's going on out there in the culture and what's happening politically, uh, even if most of the headlines you read are not giving you the direct truth. There's a story out of the Wall Street Journal today that is extremely important as it relates to the separation of powers, which is a foundational principle on which American democracy and our constitutional republic experiment rests because we have three branches of government and they're supposed to be considered co-equal. They have their lanes that they're prescribed to stay in and as long as they each branch stays in its lane, then we have checks and balances in the government that makes the government function without a lot of corruption. But because those checks and balances don't always work, we end up with a lot of corruption. And one of the places that has become very corrupt in recent years is the executive powers that are issued by the executive power that is um, held by the president, executive orders. Uh, The executive branch of government is supposed to make sure that the rules and the laws that Congress passes are executed equitably or equally. In other words, they're supposed to be the executive. They make sure that the laws get carried out through these different branches of the government. And Of course, the role of Congress, the House, and the Senate is to pass laws, and the role of the United States Supreme Court is to determine whether those laws are constitutional or not. And the Supreme Court was considered by our founders to be the lowest on the totem pole, so to speak, because they wanted Congress, where the power resides with the people, in a constitutional republic, to be the driving force behind policy in the United States. But in the last several years, and this has been Republicans and Democrats alike, that that you've had presidents who use executive orders to get around inaction, in their mind, by the Congress. Instead of waiting for Congress to work out a compromise on major issues, a president will just issue an executive order. Now, President Biden's on track to issue more executive orders than any president in U.S. history. He hasn't done that yet, but he's on track. Uh, President Trump had just over 200 executive orders, and President Biden is up now to 100 executive orders. Uh, And here we are. We're about halfway through his term, but if he continues to issue them at the rate that he has in the past, we're going to get past the number that President Trump issued because he's ahead of that number for President Trump right now. So one of the main things that the Supreme Court has been ruling on is executive power. And this conservative Supreme Court has been trying to rein in the power of the president to legislate without the legislature. That is, the, the president just in, in issuing directives on how current law is to be interpreted, he just simply uses that power to get things done that Congress will not pass as a law. So 
when you look at the history of this and you look at the Supreme Court, uh, you find that a 6-3 conservative majority is beginning to rein in this idea of executive power. For example, President Biden tried to uh, use his executive power to extend COVID-19 pandemic measures, including an eviction moratorium and a vaccinate or test mandate for large employers. Remember both of those? Both of those were pandemic-related. He wanted to tell um, people that owned apartment complexes, had rental property, that they still were not able to evict people. And the owners of this property were saying, look, we're, we're going to lose all of our property if we can't, if we don't have the right to collect rent on the people that are sitting there. And the Supreme Court sided with, against the Biden administration. They said, look, you, you can't, by executive order, rewrite the rules for rental property. You're going to have to have Congress to come and write that rule. And, of course, Congress doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Same thing with the vaccine mandate. The president came along and said, we're going to, you know, the big announcement against COVID-19, we're, we're going to have all companies with, I think, 500 employees plus, might have been 100, I can't remember what the parameters were. But in any event, he was going to force these, these larger companies to have a vaccine mandate or people couldn't work or mandatory testing. They could continue to work, but they would have to be tested, I think it was like twice a week or something like that. It was some ridiculous number that was going to make it to where most people were going to be vaccinated and most companies were going to require the vaccine for people to be able to keep their job. Supreme Court stepped in and said, nope, that's an abuse of executive power. Can't do that. Um, the court also blocked the Biden administration, from its efforts to overhaul Trump-era immigration policies and ruled that the Environmental Protection Agency overreached when regulators sought to limit emissions from coal plants. You know, we, we talked about all of these decisions on the show because they were monumental. I mean, if we had a progressive Supreme Court right now, the executive branch would be close to a dictatorship because of all of these decisions that the court has rendered that says you can't, as president, direct your agencies to, if you're, if you're going to impact the economy in a major way or you're going to impact policy in a major way that affects Americans' lives every day, you're going to have to have congressional approval. You can't use your executive powers to accomplish that. And we've been needing this kind of reining in of the executive branch, and I'm I'm talking about Republicans or Democrats. This needs to we need to reestablish the proper relationship between the executive, judicial, and legislative branches of the government. Now tomorrow, arguments are going to be made on whether President Biden can just erase all this student debt which he's saying up to $20,000. If you remember, he issued an executive order up to $20,000 of student debt from individuals can just disappear as if it was never there. It's about a $400 billion hit on the federal government from these loans that will never have to be paid back. And so tomorrow, arguments are going to be presented 
um, to find out if can this happen? Can the Biden administration do the, does he have does the president have the ability to just erase debt that was taken out by students? And I'm you know hopefully the Supreme Court's going to come through again and rein in this executive power. Biden's legacy um, as president is going to be rooted in the fact that he, more than any other president, has tried to circumvent the legislative process and just simply governed by fiat. We are not a monarchy. We are not a communist dictatorship. We are a constitutional republic. And the three branches of government, in order for that to be true, have to operate in their assigned lanes and thankfully, the Supreme Court is reining in the executive branch. Now, we don't know how those arguments are going to go, but we're going to, we'll, we'll cover them for you uh, because they're going to be made tomorrow. And a lot of times, you, you can't always predict. We always have to put these caveats in there. We don't know for sure which way the Supreme Court's going to rule, but sometimes the questions that get asked and the comments that the justices make sort of point toward a one resolution or another and when you look at the track record i mean it's the 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 conservatives have been very willing to rein in executive power hopefully when they hear these arguments tomorrow they're going to do it one more time and stop the biden administration particularly president biden from just wiping out student debt as if it never existed and i mean it's totally unfair to students that took out loans and paid them back um, it, it's totally unfair to parents who planned ahead, who did what was necessary to pay for their students to be in college and to get through, students that worked two or three jobs while they were in school so they didn't compile student debt. I mean, maybe if they'd have known that they could just take out a loan that was going to be forgiven by the president, um, they, they would have done the same thing. So we'll see how the arguments go tomorrow. All right, did you watch Saturday Night Live this week? Now, if you ask me that question, it, my answer's been no for a number of years. I, I gave up on Saturday Night Live when they became, uh, they moved from skits that were basically making fun of the culture to skits that constantly made fun of conservatives and specifically the Republican Party and Donald Trump. Um, so I just... I decided that I didn't need that. I didn't need to stay up that late if if that's the things that I think are most important are going to be attacked. But this weekend, Woody Harrelson was he hosted Saturday Night Live for the fifth time, and that's you know that makes him along uh, with the elite of those who have been on Saturday Night Live the most no, the the most times. But he did a skit which really got nervous laughter from the live audience but ignited a firestorm on the Internet. He talked about a script that he was given just before the onset of the COVID pandemic about a movie. And this is what he said about it. He said, the biggest drug cartels in the world get together and they buy up all the media and all the politicians and they force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes, and people, people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs, and they keep taking them over and over. He said, I, I threw the, the script away. 
he said, because, I mean, who's going to believe that crazy idea, being forced to do drugs? So the, this is this really got people tore up. I mean, you can imagine the progressives went nuts, and they can't they couldn't believe that somebody like Carlson, I mean Harrison, who is a, you know, Harrison's a big proponent of smoking marijuana. One of the things he said was he said I do drugs voluntarily all day long. I don't need the government to come along and force me to do it. Now, it was part of it was part of the skit. But the part about the drug cartels taking over the world, forcing people to stay in their homes unless they take their drugs, was definitely an anti-vax statement. Uh, he went full anti-vax conspiracy theory. This is according to Marlo Stern, who was the senior entertainment editor for Rolling Stone. Uh, you had a bunch of others come out, too. Representative Chip Roy of Texas called Harrison a fellow Texan and COVID lockdown critic, uh, which is a phrase that describes someone who isn't afraid to share an opinion for fear of offending others. Uh, Harrelson, Harrelson previously made waves when he told Vanity Fair his view on people being forced to wear a face mask on the set during the pandemic. He said, as one who doesn't believe in the germ theory, I find it rather absurd. During his monologue Saturday night, Harrelson described himself as an anarchist, Marxist, ethical hedonist, non-discriminatory empath, epistemological deconstructionist, and a Texan. So, look, take all that stuff with a grain of salt. The bottom line is um, Woody Harrelson didn't like the lockdowns, and I thought he came up with a pretty creative way to say it. And, of course, you know, he, he gets everybody in the political environment that we're in now, uh, that ignites a firestorm. You got, you got people jumping to his defense. And the problem is, here, here's, a, here's a problem for Christians. When somebody who is definitely not living their life according to a Christian worldview or seeking truth based on the absolute truth that's revealed in Scripture. When someone like that who's a popular figure in culture comes out and takes a position that a lot of Christians agree with, then all of a sudden, you know, instead of just saying, oh, Woody Harrelson, he's he's right about the lockdowns, they begin to push him as a spokesperson somehow for the support of Christianity. And that's just <laughs> at that we, we we've got to stop doing that because you know the, Woody Harrelson's not an apologist for Christianity. Uh, he's not even an apologist for conservative policy for the most part. Um, he's a rebel when it comes to lockdowns. He's a rebel when it comes to mask wearing, and a lot of people on the right can identify with that. But that doesn't mean all of a sudden Harrelson needs to be given some kind of conservative banner to wave and be looked to as, as somebody who, when they speak, we think that they're speaking truth into the culture and into politics. Um, nope, they're making fun of an area of the culture that they found disagreement with and an area of politics where they didn't line up. But I promise you, Woody Harrelson would line up with the progressive agenda in just about every other way. So somebody like Chip Roy 
coming out, wow, he's here's a Texan who doesn't care whatever other people say about him. Yeah, it's a good thing when some anybody comes along and says, look, I'm going to share my opinion and I'm not going to be silenced by the woke mob. That's a good thing. We can applaud that. But let's not extend it out to some fantasy ending here where we turn Woody Harrelson into a conservative or worse than that, we decide that he's he must be a believer because this is a value that I as a Christian hold and and if he holds it therefore we have that in common he must also be able be a believer that we do ourselves harm and we do the testimony our testimony in Christ harm when we do that all right Austin Barker is going to be here tomorrow filling in for Gary Gary's going to be out for a few days this week and um Austin will be here. And as I said, just to, so to kind of prepare you, um, we're going to be talking about the movie The Jesus Revolution tomorrow pretty much in detail. So if you're interested in that and you're wondering, should I go see the movie? Let me just go ahead and tell you, yeah, <laughs> I, I think you need to see it. But we'll talk about some of the impact that it may have tomorrow with Austin and a little bit about the Jesus movement because this is the movie's really bringing back a lot of those discussions about what was the Jesus movement? Was it real? Was it a real um, awakening? Was it um, a revival that some people missed because it was taking place among a population that at the time were kind of considered outcasts, the hippies? Um, so we'll we'll dive into some of that tomorrow. Um, all right, there's an interesting story today by Jimmy Quinn at National Review about something that I was totally unaware of. And that's the fact that China actually has Chinese police stations in different places in the United States as well as places around the world. It turns out there was a Chinese police station in New York City. Now, you may may be thinking, well, what, what, what are you talking about, a Chinese police station? You Don't we have... The, the New York City police, don't they, aren't they responsible for keeping law and order in this? Yeah, they are. But there was a Chinese, operated by the Chinese government, police station in New York, ostensibly, they were there to investigate Chinese nationals, to make sure that the laws were, were being fairly applied to them, but what they were actually doing was surveillance here in the United States and also surveillance on Chinese dissidents who got out of China and were able to come here. And through this so-called police station, then they were being monitored by the Chinese government. And Representative Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the New House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, rallied a bipartisan group of lawmakers alongside Chinese dissidents and human rights advocates in front of this Chinese police station in New York City. As recently as last fall, this is according to National Review, the existence of the Chinese government police outpost run by the city of Fuzhou's Public Security Bureau in Manhattan's Chinatown was unknown to most Americans. But earlier today, it became the center of a highly attended event in downtown New York where CCP opponents called out the Chinese regime's totalitarianism. Representative Richie Torres, a Democratic committee member who represents a district in the Bronx, 
emphasized the unified message at the center of the rally. He said, quote, we're sending a powerful message that the defense of human rights from the abuses of the CCP is not a Democratic value or a Republican value. It's an American value. We know that the transnational policing is not actually about the solving of crimes. It's about the systematic surveillance and suppression of political dissidents. Now, that's, that's absolutely correct. That's why this particular issue has got to be addressed, and I'm glad that Democrats and Republicans are shining the light on this together because this isn't a political uh, it, it should never be political when the Chinese government is operating a police force in the United States for the purpose of cracking down on dissidents. This happens around the world. It happens in other countries, but it can't be allowed to happen here. Um, the police station's existence was brought to light by the human rights watchdog Safeguard Defenders, in a report that was issued last fall, finding that other such outposts have been involved in harassment and stalking plots targeting Chinese nationals overseas. Since then, the FBI has reportedly searched the facility, and then the State Department came in behind the FBI and said that the police station was closed. They basically shut the whole thing down. But that raises the question, is this going on elsewhere in the country? Are there other places where the Chinese have established within the United States an enforcement agency that is looking for Chinese dissidents, looking to suppress anything that they would say, and, of course, conducting surveillance on United States citizens? Gene, thanks for the call. Yeah, I want to relate an experience that, uh, uh, well, uh, to which I had party as an observer in New York City many, many uh, about 30 years ago. I attended a uh, 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 Times Square Church uh, Sunday services with a bunch of my uh, brothers from uh, Connecticut, which we did with some frequency. And one particular service, they, um, they introduced a Chinese pastor who did not speak English who was on the run. And he gave a, a brief sermon, and and then he was immediately whisked away from the the, uh, the pulpit. And one of the things that we noticed, and we, we were told this by by the, the uh, uh, by Carter Conlon, there, he says, if you take a look, he says there are many well dressed Chinese men here. They are not us. They are pursuing this man. And I don't I don't know uh, what the uh, pastor's name was, brother so and so, and he has been uh, he has been taken in safe hiding to uh, evade capture by these people because surely they'll kill him. Wow! So the audience ought to realize that this has been going on for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Gene. I appreciate that you bringing that to our attention. Well, look, there's there there are Chinese officials in this country whose job it is is to track down dissidents and to stop criticism of the Chinese government, even when it's taking, taking place in a free speech environment like the United States. And so sometimes it's undercover. Sometimes it's blatant, like this Chinese police force. They operate with you know, stating that they have a different motive, but the real motive is to track and to, to be able to arrest or take back to China or make disappear uh, Chinese dissidents that have made it to the United States. 
Gallagher, Representative Mike Gallagher, said that it's critical that the FBI field offices across the country be trained to deal with Chinese transnational repression. In recent years, the Bureau has stepped up its investigations of foreign countries' repression on U.S. soil, setting up a tip page dedicated to such activities. It needs to be local police trained on this as well. Gallagher added, if a victim is brave enough to come forward, no repressive act orchestrated by a foreign government should ever fall on deaf ears. In his remarks at the event, Chinese dissident and Tiananmen Square protester, um, I, I would never get close to pronouncing his name, so I'll just tell you that that's who he is, pointed out saying that the at the rally is just a starting point. He said, we need to have more activities like these. We need to have more victims who are willing to speak out so that this kind of activity in the United States can be curtailed. The greatest thing about America is our freedom. Um, it's freedom of speech. That's why I get so passionate when I'm talking about these social media platforms that are using algorithms to shut down conservative speech, speech that the, the people who run the social media organization, the, that they don't agree with. We have to be a place where the First Amendment, the rights to free speech and exercise of religion are protected by the citizens. If the government's not going to protect us, it is up to us to replace that government with one that will. And I'm not talking about through violence. I'm talk, talking about through the, the normal means at the ballot box, where we elect people who believe in the protection of free speech. And in order to achieve that, we've got to be aware that there are outside influences from China, Russia, likely Iran, um, and other places that want to shut down free speech in the United States, and they want to especially do it among those who have safely come here um, and escaped Chinese oppression, Uyghurs, um, you know, Christians that are able to get out from China. They, they're worshiping underground there. It's estimated that the underground church in China is larger than the number of evangelicals in the United States. And so, you know, it, it, as we think about these issues, I understand that the economy is important to people. I understand that illegal immigration is something that we've got to, as a country, address honestly. But on top of those things, we have got to remain vigilant when it comes to our free speech rights. Because we can't talk about illegal immigration. We can't speak out about the economy if we don't have the right to freely speak, which is guaranteed to us under the Constitution. And there are progressives that do not want anybody to be able to speak but them. And that's the same kind of repression that the Chinese government is trying to pursue here in the United States against their own citizens. We've got to embrace free speech in order to defend it, whether we're defending it against people in our own government or defending, defending it against Chinese officials who would come here and try to take away other people's free speech rights. Okay, in this segment, we're going to kind of give you a little update on what's going on in South Carolina, a lot of stuff going on in the legislature this week. I'm going to be going down likely on Wednesday. Um, I've, I've got things going on here in the upstate on Tuesday and Thursday uh, that are going to keep me here. Normally, I'd go down to Columbia more than once during the week, but I'm, I'm going to have to fulfill some obligations that I have here 
um, this week. So Wednesday, I'll be spending all day down to the legislature. Um, but this week, uh, lawmakers, according to the Greenville News, and I can vouch for this because I was there for most of it, continued to investigate the $3.5 billion accounting area uh, era rather in the state's financial books. Uh, they grill state auditors about how an era of that magnitude could happen and go unnoticed for so long. Um, we don't have any answers yet, but still a lot of questions that are being asked. Lawmakers also trying to build state revenue to support thousands of new residents from out of state, and their solution, according to the Greenville News, is to hike the driver's license fees by 900%. Now, before everybody flips out, this would be for people moving to South Carolina from other states. They would pay essentially a fee. Uh, some in the legislature are calling it, calling it a Yankee tax to charge people and because they're saying, well, as people come to South Carolina, it's causing more infrastructure needs. Uh, the county has to offer more services because the population's going up. There has to be money for this, money for infrastructure. And so there's there's been some, um, some lawmakers that are supporting this effort. Um, Senator Stephen Goldfinch, who's a Republican from Georgetown, he's the lead sponsor of S-208, and he said the legislation would allow counties to hold a referendum during the 2024 general election to impose a new resident fee that would pay for the infrastructure. Residents now pay $25 to $35 for driver's licenses and pay between $250 and $300 to register a vehicle. With this proposed bill, those fees would go up to $250 for a license and almost $500 to register vehicles. So that's going to be, again, to take that money and put it toward infrastructure as more people move into the area. We in South Carolina do not require capital contribution of anybody that moves here from out of state, although they take advantage of our roads, our bridges, our schools, and our green spaces immediately on day one. Goldfinch set. And to make matters worse, we have to pay for those roads, bridges, schools, and green spaces in anticipation of the person that comes from out of state. So during the bill's fiscal impact assessment, the South Carolina Revenue and Fiscal Affairs Office reached out to counties and only received responses from three. No county from the upstate responded. Goldfinch said on the February 22nd, said in the February 22nd meeting, that about a million new residents were expected to move to South Carolina in the next 10 years. In the upstate, most of the new residents are, are um, basically coming to the metropolitan area around Greenville and Spartanburg, and they're coming from southeastern states such as Georgia and North Carolina, as well as Texas and Florida. That's according to 2020 data compiled by the Upstate Alliance. The Upstate also saw big migratory numbers from states such as New York, California, Connecticut, Illinois, and Michigan, yet it appears that this bill is aimed toward those moving from northeastern states since lawmakers refer to it as a Yankee tax. Senate Finance Committee Chairman Harvey Peeler whose constituents live in the upstate, ask how this legislation would align with other state efforts where public universities are proposing to forgive out-of-state tuition. And Senator John Scott, who is a Democrat in Richland, 
said that lawmakers needed to be careful about migration trends to the state. Uh, Goldfinch said, we're not trying to build a wall across North Carolina border, but at the same time, we think the new people should have to pay their fair share when they show up. Um, I don't think this is going anywhere. I mean, I honestly don't. I I don't think, you know, people who move here are going to pay taxes here. They're going to buy property. They're going to pay property taxes. They're going to pay gas tax, going to pay sales tax. They're going to pay their income taxes here. And just to lump another tax or fee on top of that to to charge them when they come in the door, uh, who in the world thinks this is a conservative thought process that the government takes advantage of people coming to South Carolina. I don't I, I, I don't see that as having having legs. We'll see. Uh, constitutional carry bill passed the South Carolina House and was sent to the Senate. The South Carolina House passed the constitutional carry bill H594 uh, 87 to 26 on February 22nd. The bill allows residents age 18 or older to carry guns openly without training or a permit. So, you know, we've already got open carry, but we have open carry with a permit. You, If you have a concealed weapons permit, you can carry your weapon openly unless you've got businesses that say you can't come in the door carrying the weapon. And this is, this is the thing. There's you're starting to see more and more of these signs on business stores. If they put up a sign that says no concealed weapon, then you can't openly carry in that facility either. Representative Jason Elliott, Republican Greenville, said the bill advanced the open carry law signed into law in August of 2021. It doesn't change who can carry a concealable weapon, uh, what weapon a person can carry, where or when that person can carry, he said. It just simply says that you can do it, uh, you can carry the weapon if without a, a a permit, a concealed permit. If you've got a weapon and you want to carry it open, uh, carry it, you can. So this would I, this pretty much would do away with the, with the uh, permitting process. Um, I don't know how this is going to fare in the Senate. Uh, I think there's a much more um, there's a strain of senators that think that yeah we want legal carry we want open carry we want people to know that in south carolina we support the second amendment but i think likely they're going to keep some kind of training aspect um, included during the debate over this lawmakers were concerned about a resident's ability to carry a gun if they had a prior record of criminal activity Greenville lawmakers Bobby Cox and Jason Elliott successfully introduced changes where if a person's conviction lasted more than a year, they would not be allowed to open carry a firearm. An earlier version said anyone with a prior conviction was barred from carrying their weapons openly. So how's this going to fare over in the Senate? Look, I'll be honest with you. I, I know this is not popular in South Carolina, but I've had my concealed weapons permit for probably 15 years. Uh, I think it's important to have some modicum of training before you simply pick up a weapon and carry it either openly or concealed. If you're going to, and, and I know a lot of people in South Carolina disagree with that. I've got friends of mine that disagree with that. They say, no, the Second Amendment is my permit. It says that I can carry a weapon 
that Congress can't tell me or laws can't be passed to curtail my ability to protect myself and to be armed, um, the right to bear arms. Well, you know, most of our rights come with some restrictions or come with some caveat, some um, way that those rights have to be expressed in a responsible way. And I'm not, I mean, you're not going to find me out crusading against this one way or the other. Um, I mean, if, if the Senate ag- agrees with this, then we'll have open carry without permitting. I think we're better off. I think that having um, some sense of training where it's, it's not just a matter of the government making money off of it. You know, you, look, the, the concealed weapons training is, is not all that extensive. You go, you're taught the law about what uh, 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 governing firearms in South Carolina um, you, you have to be able to, to shoot, f- get 50 shots inside the black on a target, um, in order, in other words, you, you've got to be a, a good enough shot that you're not just going to whip your weapon out and fire, you know, spray bullets all over the place. Um, uh, you've got to be able to focus and, and put the rounds where they're supposed to go. Um, and you've got to know when and when not to use a weapon. And I, I think that's important. I mean, there are laws in South Carolina that govern the use of a firearm. And before you strap one on, uh, which means that you've got the possibility of using it, I think you should be aware of those laws and that the public needs to be confident that people who are carrying have some level of training. So I, I lean more toward the permit process. I mean, I... Why not verify? Why not get some training? And I know people are shouting on the magic microphone thing. I hear people saying, well, no, I, I have a right to, to keep and bear arms, and the government shouldn't curtail, curtail that right in any way. Well, I, I, f- I feel like I have a right to drive a car. Now, that's actually a privilege, and I have to demonstrate some level of competency and ability before I get behind the wheel because a car is something that can kill you. It can kill another person. Um, I think a weapon is, it falls in that category. I mean, if you, if you, if you have a deadly weapon and you, and you carry it, I think a modicum of responsibility is required and that you understand under what circumstances you can use that weapon and stay within the law, um, and that you've got safety instructions on how to use that without hurting somebody that might be a bystander if you were to ever have to produce a weapon to defend yourself. So that's me. But like I said, if the legislature passes this, I'm not going to be down there lobbying one way or the other about this particular issue. Um, I'm comfortable with it either way. But if you press me, I think we're better off if we have a permitting process. All right. Uh, Last thing, of course, we're still at an impasse when it comes to uh, protecting life in South Carolina. We've got the Senate saying that it's got to be the heartbeat bill, six weeks. We've got the House saying it's got to be the Human Life Protection Act. Life begins at conception. And right now, all the pro-life groups, the one message groups are working to try to get the Senate to accept the House version, which is the Human Life Protection Act. 
And if, if you would just take a minute, uh, contact your senator, find out who they are, even if it's a senator in the upstate who would tend to support the Human Life Protection Act, you can call them, text them, email them, and ask them to vote to set it for special order. Uh, ask them to support getting it out of committee. You can find out ho- who's on uh, the Medical Affairs Committee, which is where this bill is right now over in the Senate, by going to sc.statehouse.gov, and right on the front page, you can put in your put in your information, and you'll find out who your senator is, and you can contact them. Hearing from you right now could make all the difference. We're putting out information in these senators' districts about support for the Human Life Protection Act, and if if you can help us by contacting your senator, having a conversation with them, sending them an email. We would appreciate that because we really, we're going to be up to soon to a thousand abortions a month taking place in South Carolina because of our 20 week law. It's made us a destination state. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. We'll be back tomorrow, and Austin will be here running the board. We'll be having a conversation. I hope you'll join us. <laughs>